We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, thank you for that. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 6, please. We're in Acts chapter 6, and uh, finishing up this section of uh, the first few verses of the chapter about the first deacons, this will be part two of this message. We uh, introduced it with a reading of the text last time. We'll do that again just now to refresh our memory. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, or in other words, to leave the word of God in order to have time to serve the tables. Therefore, brothers, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose... Then the list, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we weren't surprised that a problem arose in the church in uh, Jerusalem because of the vast size of it and the rapid growth of the church. And uh, we said, you know, there there were thousands and thousands of people, so there were probably hundreds and hundreds of widows who needed assistance uh, in the church. And so, you know, even if some of those widows had family, which they should have, according to Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there should be, if a widow has family, they should take care of her. Uh, And that's just an expectation. Uh, that is laid on people because of family and the common grace and common sense of that. But there were probably many who had no family or family that just refused to take care of them, so needed some help. The daily distribution is probably food, some other necessities, uh, we said. But the problem was that some of the widows, particularly the Hellenists, the Greek culture uh, women, widows rather, were neglected in this distribution of the food. And so for whatever reason, a logistical matter or a a, uh, ethnocentric kind of thing uh, going on, we don't know exactly, but they, you know, evidently some kind of relationship to their culture, they were neglected in the daily distribution. And so they had to get this straightened out. And uh, the results are quite interesting, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, or at the end of the section, rather, in in verse number 7. We won't get to the end of the chapter probably tonight. But, um, you know, we looked at this just from different aspects or different angles. You know, we said the need for benevolence like that today is greatly reduced because people look to Uncle Sam before they look to Uncle Church for their support. 
So uh, people get, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, disability, food stamps, uh, and all that sort of thing. And uh, that came about because of the compassion of society and the fact that we didn't just cast off, you know, the poor, the orphans, and the widows because the society was influenced positively by the Christian faith over the course of the last centuries, at least in the West. Um, we have a heart towards widows and orphans because we share the heart of God if we're believers, and he has a heart for widows and orphans. True religion is to visit them, to assist them in their need, and uh, not certainly not to oppress them. So they uh, went about, these uh, leaders in the church, to uh, solve the problem, and they did so in a way that was uh, initially, I should say this, the church went about doing it in maybe an ad hoc way, but initially it wasn't done correctly. It wasn't done in a way that would grow with the church. It wasn't done in a comprehensive or forward-looking way, and so it worked from the, when the church was small, but as things got bigger, it just didn't work and so they had this uh, complaint. So the apostles then exercised their leadership role to uh, make a change, and they did that. Uh, their leadership wisdom was, we shouldn't be leaving behind the things we should be doing in order to do this service. There are people who can do that more effectively and as a better use of their time. So uh, we're not going to do it ourselves, but we're going to have somebody delegated to do the actual work of the business of uh, this matter and take care of it. So theoretically, although they could help, they decided that it wouldn't be wise to do that. So uh, we mentioned something last time about the um, uh, nature of the waiting on tables, the perhaps involving money not necessarily like a restaurant kind of scenario where you might think of being a waiter at a restaurant. Um, and we also made a point to say that we need to put aside in our minds the relative value of the jobs that are, the various jobs that are done in the church. Maybe you remember this point. You know, you might think, well, the, the apostles teaching the word and praying, you know, they're really the specialists in that, and that's a really important job, and so they can't be bothered with these really piddly little jobs, you know, these unimportant things. And really the function of the church is to do both of those things, benevolence and teaching the word and prayer and everything in between. And so if somebody is doing the job that they're outfitted ideally to do, that's the place of importance for them. So we don't say this job is, you know, A-level importance and this job is C-level importance. They're all important. They all need to be done but by different people. It's not good for a person who is outfitted to do this job to try to do this job or a person outfitted to do these jobs to do this job. Uh, so we, we set aside that relative measure of value, but rather think of the qualifications and the giftedness that helps somebody to do that work. Um, th when they selected the men for this job, they uh, noticed they noted some moral qualifications. They had to be men of good reputation. They had to be full of the spirit. They had to be full of wisdom, and uh, who we could appoint over this business. They had to be obviously, you know, kind of with it. You know, they're 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 people who kind of are naturally able to carry out tasks and and uh, follow procedures. And then there are those that are just kind of lost a little bit. You know what I mean? They're kind of followers. They 
they don't have the ability to kind of, it seems, I think many do, but they don't, or they're not diligent in the development of that, but they just seem in their present state to not be able to kind of get going. And so that kind of person would not be one who would be appointed over the business that was necessary to be done uh, for the church. Uh, they had to be faithful in their life. They couldn't be swindlers. They had to uh, carry that conduct or that character over into their new job assignment. And so, you know, the, the leaders here, the apostles, were saying, we just can't put anybody in these positions. We have to put people that are good men in them. Now, I want you to notice the uh, congregational involvement of the uh, uh, people in the church. They were told in verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of reputation. We could call this the nominating procedure, if you will. The church would have an idea, we could say a kind of collected wisdom, as to who would be a good person. The apostles might not even know because, I mean, there are 5,000 people. They've hardly had time in the weeks that the church has been alive, maybe months, to even get to know all the people in the church. And there there are now more than 10,000, you know, men and women and children under their care in that first assembly of Christian people. And who knows if it was even a fully organized church at that point. I mean, they didn't even really have a pastor or they didn't have deacons now at this point. They had apostles, but they're not exactly the same as pastors. You know, they were functioning that way. But um, so they, but they asked the congregation, look, you in wisdom know who uh, could fulfill this role. And uh, so they said, uh, you know, select seven guys to do this. And, uh, you know, the committee, so to speak, although it's not an old kind of the traditional committee approach. It was, I'm sure it was a little different than that, a little more do something rather than just sit around talking kind of approach uh, to the work. Now, we have in our own church congregational involvement in similar ways. And we believe that, you know, ultimately the earthly authority to do such things rests in the hands of the congregation itself, not the a body of elders, say, in some self-propagating way, nor in some denominational hierarchy. It's not like, you know, somebody from Detroit tells us, here's who your pastor and deacons are going to be. You know what I mean? But that does happen in some churches. The leaders suggested an approach, and there was a like-mindedness among the part of the congregation. And let me say this, not because they were forced to be like-minded or that they were just rubber stamping what the apostles were doing. It was because they had a good and spiritually minded approach to the problem. And the people in the church saw the wisdom of that. I mean, in fact, this is, is really nothing more than a revised version of what happened when Moses' father-in-law told him, you can't do all this stuff yourself. You need to have elders in the congregation of the Assembly of Israel who can be judges and take the easy cases and just kind of percolate the hard ones up to you so you have much less to do. This is just the same kind of thing as that. And so who's going to argue against the wisdom of that? It's pretty obvious that that's what needs to be done because of the, the relative 
you know, difference of apostle and what they're cut out to do and what everybody else can be able to handle. So, um, you know, there's not an absolute top-down kind of authority structure there in Acts 6, nor here in our church, but a consensus kind of self-governance. Oh, it seems good to us, you know. seems like a good idea that we do this. We have uh, another deacon, or we uh, purchase a home, or we, you know, it seems like it's a, it's prudent. It's not a stupid idea, you know, it's not a, a, a sinful idea, but a prudent one. In our constitutional setup, some of the general service and oversight matters have been pre-decided as far as deacons and treasurer and other matters. And so in that, we've kind of laid out, here's what the duties are for this office, the treasurer, the deacons, or you know, a Sunday school superintendent if we have one, or whatever it is. Um, and people know what their limits are and where they're empowered to act. And uh, you know, normally, uh, there's, in a small church like this, and the spirit that we've had is very kind, uh, kind of spirit where uh, we have this kind of self-governance and consensus and uh, there's a very nice approach to, well, what do you think about that? And, Pastor, I just wanted to check and make sure that's okay and that sort of thing. I assume that in the uh, assignment that they were giving to these men, the leadership was saying the administration of, of this whole affair is going to be in their hands. Okay, They're going to handle the money. They're going to handle the budget. They're going to handle the, de- the details of the food distribution and so on and so forth. We don't have to look into it. And maybe, of course, you know, when there's a hard issue that comes up. Hey, pastor, hey, apostles, what should we do about this case? You know, this is like we haven't ever thought about this before. You know, so-and-so in this situation and that family and blah, blah, blah. What do we do? So maybe they would bring that sort of thing to them. But basically, the gentleman would have the authority to make decisions that were necessary to carry out the ministry, and they'd also be assigned the resources to do that ministry. They wouldn't be micromanaged in all of their dealings. Okay, so now what about the men who were selected for this task? And it's very interesting that we're given their names. The as I call them the first deacons, they were the first servants of the church. Stephen was the first one, I think because of his prominence and because of what happens next starting in verse 8 all the way through chapter 7, unfortunately, we could say unfortunately for Stephen, although it did get him to heaven uh quicker, and, uh, you know, he didn't have to languish on in some old age state and all of that sort of thing, you know, he just got there lickety split. But it was Stephen, he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, shortly to become the first martyr. There was Philip, there was Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, always reminds me of Parmesan cheese, Parmenas, but uh, it was Parmenas, not Parmesan. And Nicholas. Now, Nicholas is interesting because he's a couple of descriptive words next to him. Nicholas, it says, is a proselyte from Antioch. Okay, so it doesn't say Antioch of Syria or Antioch of Pisidia, but probably Antioch of Syria, uh, being closer by. And what does it mean that he was a proselyte? Well, in Bible times, a proselyte would be somebody who converted to Judaism. Okay. People today might say, oh, you're out on campus on Saturday making proselytes, being, meaning trying to convert people to Christianity. 
Well, yeah, we're trying to you know, see people converted to Christianity, but in this historical context, a proselyte was one who was a Gentile who became a follower of the Jewish faith. And then, guess what happened to him? Then he took one more step and became a follower of Christ, a Christian, which is what all Jewish proselytes should do if they kind of come through that path. They should then go on and receive the Messiah of the Jewish people, who's talked about in Isaiah 53, for example, alluded to in Psalm 22, for instance, and Psalm 2, and Psalm 110, and uh, all of the scriptures, uh, many of the scriptures that are talked about uh, in, the, in the New Testament. So that's interesting that he was that kind of Gentile proselyte, then, then Christian, and deacon, very responsible man. Some of these guys... I would say this, I said this a little bit last time, some of them seem to be overqualified for their work. I mean, Stephen, you see him, he's doing more preaching and defending the faith, and you wonder, well, when was he actually waiting on tables, (laughs) right? He was kind of overqualified in a sense. That's not a criticism from me toward him at all. It's just saying he was such a high-caliber guy that he could take care of managing Along with the other six, this matter of the, the tables, the, or the uh, distribution of the necessities for the widows, and do all these other things as well. Maybe he was able to do that because, well, maybe he was well off because he was a hard worker and had accumulated some resources, and now he was able to devote himself to the ministry. I don't know exactly, but uh, it's an interesting situation. So deacons, not only can be serving in, let's say, menial tasks, but also can be servants and teachers and evangelists and counselors and whatever else that they're qualified to do. Now, there was kind of an ordination or recognition ceremony, verse number 6. The uh, They set before the apostles these ones, so they is the congregation. They said, look, here's who we, we're putting these guys forward. These are the qualified people among us, no question about it. And they set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, praying over them and laying hands on them sets them apart for the work that they're called to do. It's a very solemn kind of recognition, ordination, ceremony. Uh, you know, we, we have done prayers like this before. We may have in the future if we send off someone to the mission field, uh, which we're hoping to do, and in short order, relatively short order, in the next years, um, we might, you know, have that kind of thing. And marking these out as the assigned people, delegating to them the authority and the responsibility of the work. Nothing happened to them spiritually that made them qualified to do the work. You know how we know that? Because they were selected in the first place because they were already qualified to do the work. So it wasn't adding anything to their qualification or giving them new abilities when they had the prayer and laying on of hands. That was just a mark, marking out or recognition kind of ceremony. They were already men of character that was required uh, before the ceremony was observed, before the prayer was offered, and uh, they didn't need any further abilities, as it were. Now, uh, we move along in in this idea here of service and just say this, it's not told us if their position was permanent or time or term limited. 
and I've heard people talk about this and people get kind of excited about, oh, a deacon should only be, you know, have three terms or something like that. I'm like, I don't see that in the scriptures myself. These guys are qualified and after six years, they didn't become disqualified, did they? No, they're still qualified. I mean, unless they've, you know, fallen off the wagon, so to speak, and and aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing and haven't maintained their spiritual uh, discipline. But, you know, good men are usually good men longer term, right? So there's no reason to, to think that we have to have a term-limited position or we've got to give more people turns, like as if there's some kind of fairness doctrine and rotating the turns. If you have plenty of qualified people and you want to do that, fine. I just wouldn't demand it in my constitution or something like that as if, now, what you do is you say, okay, I've got three guys in the church. They're the best qualified guys, but they've run out of their term limits, so we've got to set them aside and pick three lesser qualified guys just because we have to have different guys. That's not wise, okay? So, as always the case, when you add constraints that the Bible doesn't add, what happens? You end up with less than optimal solutions to the situations that you're in. So... Um, we don't believe, however, that deacons are a self-propagating, self-appointing, self-supporting bureaucracy either. You know, we have one of those in the United States. It's called the administrative or bureaucratic state, and it is a monstrous mess. But we don't have a kind of self-appointing or self-perpetuating bureaucratic system of, you know, special benevolent support or anything like that. Now, the text doesn't tell us explicitly, but I would say it's pretty close in verse 7 to saying, here is the result of what happened in the church after they implemented this improved system of keeping the apostles busy with their work and putting people in charge of this benevolence work. And I look, I, in my notes, I looked at it from the, this one-sided perspective. And let me just share it with you briefly and then the other side that I just was thinking about. The one side of, of perspective on this is it, the church functioned well and had a good result. Look at verse 7 again. Then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. They had a huge impact because, I go back to my... My, my dad's background as a mechanic because the church was running on all eight cylinders. It didn't have four cylinders up here, you know, plugging away, doing 90% of the work and having to do all this benevolence stuff while everybody else just kind of sat there and was dead weight on the crankshaft, just, you know, slowing down the whole machine, you know. Everybody was clicking along, doing what they were supposed to be doing, and so the church could have maximal effectiveness. Now, I might say something more about that, but let me look at it from the other side. The other side is the church was having that maximal effectiveness, and who, toward whom was that effectiveness being demonstrated? Well, particularly it was toward the widows. And the benevolence and the help that they were receiving probably had a, the effect of being a great testimony among those that were outside the church. And so not only was the church operating smoothly and on all eight cylinders, but people looking from the outside were saying, look, this is how they take care of their widows. They're doing a better job than we are. These people are, are loving people. They, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you what? 
Love one another. We know that verse. But that love is demonstrated. It's not just like, oh, yeah, we love one another. You know, write it on paper. We love one another. We love one another. No, you demonstrate that love. You, you visit. You help. You, you know, do whatever uh, things are seen to be called for in order to demonstrate that and help people. So when that occurs from the outsiders, you looking in, they're saying, man, this is a, this is a godly society of people. Society, by society, I mean like group, you know, not, not club, but a godly organization, although it's, not, again, not an organization. You've heard us talk about that before. A godly group of people. And then it says, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What happened there? Well, they weren't supposed to do that, were they? <laughs> but what happens is you have some priests who... They've been so in contact with God's word and perhaps have become so disenchanted or disenfranchised with the leadership of their ranks that they're saying, man, these Christian people are actually doing what I know in my heart is the right thing to do. But my leadership, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, are saying no. But I'm like, obviously, yes, they're correct. And we see the Messiah fulfills the promises of the Old Testament scriptures. It's hard to deny. And plus, they love one another, which is what the Old Testament tells us to do, to love our neighbor as ourselves and love God with all of our hearts. I mean, it's like they're fulfilling all the stuff we're supposed to be doing, and our leaders are hating on them. How does that work? And so they see what's happening here, and they get convinced that, Christ is the way, and they get saved. And so they leave the, uh, eventually, you know, they'd have to leave the uh, priesthood and recognize that, uh, as I was asked yesterday, what's the difference between a pastor and a priest? Well, one of the, part of my answer was, there really are no such things as priests today. There are churches who think they have priests, but what is a priest? A priest is me if I'm a priest, standing in between a person and God. And if you want to confess your sins, guess who you come to to do your confession to? Well, that's not the Christian way at all. You go right to God through Jesus. He is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So these priests would have to stop and realize, wait a minute, there was one last priest, Jesus. Now, of course, we know there's a sense in which in our our Baptist brothers tell us very well, of, of whom we're pretty much in their number, you know, that uh, we're all priests, which we are, because we come to God and we, we can pray directly to Him and confess our sins and all that. The priesthood of the believer is true. We're all being built up a yeah, spiritual house in, in Christ. So... In any case, uh, the priests came. So that was uh, good, uh, very good. So the result, the word of God spread. The church was working well. The church was having a good testimony among those that were outside uh, the church. The priests were obedient to the faith. That meant they, they obeyed the demand of the gospel to repent and believe in Christ. Everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. This freed up the gifted men in the areas of teaching in preaching and evangelism to do the work that they could do best, and this resulted in the growth in the church. So the, the application for us is, you know, to, to the extent that we do not have all of our members f- working in the church and either in some kind of service or ministry 
or uh, in a way that they're using their spiritual gift. If, they're, if people are not doing that, the church is that much less effective than it could be, than it should be, than we're held back in our growth. You may be one of the keys to the growth of Fellowship Bible Church. If you are not doing that which you're supposed to be doing, giving, serving, evangelizing, hospitality, uh, teaching, preaching, uh, administering, serving, whatever, all those gifts that are listed in the Bible. If you're not doing your part, then something's missing. And you can't be, in a sense, you can't be replaced. Now, I know we say nobody's indispensable, right? That's true. And God takes us to heaven and somebody else has to stand in to be to do whatever functions are necessary that you're doing. But right now, while you're here, you're indispensable until God takes you out. And what I mean by that is a slightly different sense of like, nobody can do what you can do. You're gifted in the way you're gifted. You have the ability to interact with people the way you do. I don't have that. You have that. You have that. You know, so you could talk to somebody, you can help somebody, you can encourage somebody in a way that I can't, that she can't, that he can't, because you can, and you're that person. So serve, we have to serve. Now, let me give you a couple cautions here. One is, on the one hand, to overemphasize the example of, you know, let's get organized and let's have a committee and let's, you know, do this and all, do that and management methods and all that. You make management and, and methods everything. Some, church, some, some in the church growth movement are kind of guilty of this sort of thinking. You know, you can be highly organized, but not highly faithful. You can also be highly disorganized and faithful to God, but there's something that's off. And that is, if you underemphasize the example of the apostles doing this, then you make faithfulness and diligence inconsequential. You know, if you just let things happen, they're disorganized, you don't do ministry well, then you should not expect some blessing from above. People have said this before, and there's a true sense to it. You know, God doesn't bless a mess. The mess is blessed. It's not blessed, you know. Um, Laziness does not make disciples over here, but methods do not make disciples over here. You with me? We can can err in two ways ways here, two ditches, if you will, on the side of the road uh, in this matter. Okay, let's just focus on organization or now just forget about that and just, you know, let happen what happens. Both of those are incorrect. The combination of faith and diligence is what we need as over against being centered on methods or centered on mysticism. Just kind of let God deal with it, and it'll it'll happen. It'll straighten itself out. You know, the apostles didn't say, oh, the problem with the widows, that'll straighten itself out, and it'll go away. You know, something will happen. So, as I close, uh, just mention something about the formalized office of a deacon or deacons in the church. Um, I have taken this passage to be kind of the the instigation or institution of of the office, the church began to find it necessary um, and, uh, and then was formalized in Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where, uh, you know, criterion are laid out. Uh, the service of the deacon is kind of formalized along with that of the elder or pastor in the church. And, and beyond a certain size in a church, it seems quite evident that 
service has to be handled by a separate group of men than the, pa- the pastors or teachers. And the size of the church in which that becomes needed is fairly small. You know, you don't have to reach 500 people. When, you know, that's far too big already. 100 is far too big when you need somebody to help with the facilities and you know, the finances and the whatever, all the different things that, that have to happen. So within 30 years of the birth of the church, Paul instructed Timothy about the qualifications of these men that, were, that had to be spiritual and, and well-qualified and families in order and all of that to be good servants of the church. The office and men who make up, take up the office of deacon are more formalized than, than say, what we have every day. Now, I'm not saying, we, you know, we have deacons and we have that formalized office, but what I'm saying is I'm contrasting that with everybody's a servant. Some people are set aside especially to administrate and be over certain areas of ministry, but everyday Christians have everyday service roles toward one another. We're called to be servants of one another serve one another through love. Whether we have the office or not, we are deaconing as needed. Deacon is just a, to, to serve. It just comes from the verb to serve and uh, to serve one another. So for us as, as leaders, we need to lead. We don't need to do everything. In fact, it's you know sometimes, like I would say, I could say it this way. Don't take this the wrong way because I've done all the jobs in the church, I think. Uh, in some context, I would just say to the guys, look, it would, for me to vacuum the, 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 the carpet right now would be a sin. I feel that way. Somebody else can do it. I have to get to my Bible. I have to get to the study. I have to do this counseling. I have to go, I have to go make a visit just now to the hospital. To get caught up cleaning up after dinner would not be the best use of my time. And so I would be convicted by that and say, well, you know, I, I wiped the tables, but I didn't do a visit. And I would feel poorly about that. So it could be a sinful thing in my you know, mind at that point if we don't do like what this example is. For deacons, deacons should be qualified and they work hard on their assigned tasks and be skilled in those assigned tasks. And for the congregation, congregation needs to be participating responsibly and selecting leaders, knowing who is spiritually qualified and, and then help by not making their job difficult. Um, I'm just jotting down in my notes to add that thought that I had about the external testimony uh, of the church as well. And we help the external testimony when the church inside works very well. So back to the congregation. You know, make sure that your teachers and your prayers, you know, people that are praying, the people that are teaching, the people that are pastoring, that they do not become overwhelmed. Um, Help them out. Notice when there's things that need to be done that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be doing, if you know what I mean. Um, and, and, and don't be prejudiced either. When I, when I say that, I'm saying, you know, oh, we have some Hellenists in our church, you know, in the first century church. Well, we treat them differently than we treat the Jewish widows. Why? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Don't be prejudiced like that. Where, where does that come? That comes from a heart of pride and sin. That doesn't come from God, certainly. Make sure that the church focuses on its God-given tasks, such as the ministry of the word, prayer, and evangelism, and taking care of the poor uh, in the church. And the external testimony of the church will be sterling then 
and people will see that that's a real community of people who, uh, who love the Lord and are doing His will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, and I pray that you'd help us to put this just another step into practice. Help us to do uh, as best we can in uh, being like that first century church in that regard of service to one another and bearing the load and burdens of uh, the ministry in the church. And I'm not preaching this to criticize anybody in our church, but just to remind us of our responsibilities and uh, help us to uh, take steps further in that good direction. And perhaps somebody listening online from another church and their church has been maybe a little disorganized or disordered, or maybe it's focused a little too much on the, on the methods and the, and the uh, management style and things like that and is left off on faithfulness in other areas. And I pray that you would just work in those cases and help them. In Jesus' name, amen.